What advice does an award-winning researcher have for turning your classroom into an educational inquiry? Join one of Canada's leading education scholars, Dr. Kathleen Gallagher, as we discuss drama, research, and radical hope. I'm Celeste Kirsch, and we are Teaching Tomorrow. I met Dr. Gallagher when I was completing my Master's of Teaching at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. I worked as a grad student on her Putting Inner City Students First project, and then later Kathleen asked me to host it for her. She was leaving on a European trip to attend a conference with her wife and then two-year-old child. I jumped at the chance to get out of my musty basement apartment and hang out with her adorable golden retriever. Well, flash forward, and I also have a wife and a two-year-old and a golden retriever, and this is all largely inspired by the time I spent in Dr. Gallagher's beautiful home. Well, I know I was helping out Dr. Gallagher, I really felt taken care of by her, and of course, her dog during this trip. As I find out in my conversation today, caretaking and how we take care of other people has some pretty remarkable implications for the classroom. You definitely need to keep listening for this because I think it's going to surprise you. I also just wanted to acknowledge that this is the first time that I'm releasing two episodes in one week. I wanted to get this episode out to you now because Kathleen Gallagher's research on drama and radical hope has been transformed into a play by the immensely talented playwright, Andrew Kushner. It's playing right now at Crow's Theatre in Toronto and is an incredible glimpse into the drama classroom and how young people experience this unique form of learning around the world. The ensemble is powerful, the storytelling is breathtaking, and obviously the research is brilliant. If you can get yourself to see this show, by all means, go. It is playing now until March 16th. This is my talk with Dr. Kathleen Gallagher. Please forgive me for some of the ambient noise in the background. We recorded on her patio outside, and while there are some cicadas in the background, it is all pure gold, so please fight over the ambient noise. Enjoy. Why don't you tell everyone who you are, mm -hmm. what work you do, where you work, what you're passionate about? Okay. Um... I am a professor at University of Toronto at Boise, and I'm cross-appointed to the Centre for Theatre and Performance Studies. And prior to that, I taught in a, in a girls' school in a classroom for 10 years while I was doing my master's and then PhD at Boise. And I think the relationship between the questions I had as a teacher that were ongoing, that shifted, that seem to congeal around areas of creative activity, theater making, art making, and at that time I, I thought about it as identity formation, mm -hmm. and particularly for young women. Um, then I found myself in, maybe like you, in some inspiring graduate classes where I could pose the questions I had, I could think about theory that would expand my ways of even asking those questions, and then I could try things out or test the grounds for those understandings in my quote-unquote lab mm -hmm. every day. And I became kind of addicted to that relationship between thinking through the complexity of teaching and doing the everyday work of teaching. Yeah. You taught drama for many years and now you're really enmeshed in looking at the bigger picture of drama and yeah. how drama can really 
I mean, some of the most recent research you're doing is really so powerful because you're looking at these really big, complex social issues and using drama as a tool. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now as a researcher around drama and educating youth about social issues? Sure. Um, I I think I want to pick up on on you posing this as as a question about drama as a tool. And I think in education that's how people see it. And the last 20 years have really caused me to even interrogate that language Mm. because um, drama never feels like a tool to me when I'm when I'm engaged in it when I'm doing it when I'm working with youth or when I'm witnessing them work with each other and unfortunately um, well let's say people who maybe don't feel as ensconced in the language of drama um, rightly see its value in lots of different educational contexts or um, to work with youth in different ways but I think it's a little bit of a I think we could do a lot more to think about making creating ensemble building as a kind of a practice of mm-hmm. teaching and learning and so if drama has anything, it has a kind of raison d'être for that way of working. That is, people are going to come together with a shared purpose. And I think it's as simple as that. And um, that's the way I think most of us as teachers would like to fashion our classrooms, consider that that's what we're doing. And we also know that there are a myriad, myriad of things that stand in the way of that kind of aspiration. So when you get back to making together, um, I think it sheds light on social relationships that otherwise we wouldn't have insight into. Mm. And so early on in my career as a researcher, I realized that not only was the drama space, the room, the, the, the uh, subject, the discipline, a, a really fertile space, for looking at all kinds of big questions about social relations, about gender relations, about um, how young people are navigating increasingly complex and now increasingly divided and polarized worlds. Um, I began to understand that it had something to do with the impulse to create together and I don't want to idealize that because I've done some of the best learning in watching the conflicts and tensions Mm. in that because you know it's a cliche to think about the classroom as a microcosm but every teacher will have their own version of that understanding that we see things playing out up close in that space that we recognize as broader realities that we live in a variety of contexts so um, my current study is, uh, has grown from previous interests and I use ethnography as my, as my main research apparatus because that's about getting inside the culture of something. 
Can you explain a little more about what that is for people who maybe don't have that academic language? Sure. So ethnographic research is a way of being in the everydayness of a context which is for you under study of interest. And that to me has always been uh, classrooms um, and also community spaces where children and youth uh, work together, um, formal and informal education. But particularly, I would say schools, because schools are worlds unto themselves. Mm. And to me, endlessly fascinating in terms of the new questions that they pose or the ways in which uh, ways of being or leadership styles can deeply affect the culture of the place as people are experiencing it. So ethnography, um, afford you as a researcher a way of trying to be inside that, trying to be um, not as many of the youth in the classrooms uh, imagine before I arrive or even after I'm there and with a team of graduate students that will have lab coats on and will have um, <laughs> uh, clipboards and will be observing them as specimen and making notes about them. But actually the drama classroom, because it's so participatory, we're we're in there deeply with them. You're doing activities with the whole class. We're, we're leading, we're uh, sitting back, we're watching, we're uh, being sounding boards to groups who are working on things. We're, in a sense, uh, you know, it's kind of an ideal scenario for me because I'm trying to be of assistance to the teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be uh, another um, supportive adult in the room. Well, you're getting something out of that teacher too, so I can totally oh. imagine you wanting to contribute something back to their classroom. Yeah, and, it, and it's not even that, um, it's not even that market-based <laughs> give and get. Yeah. I mean, that's where I have a, I question even the term reciprocity because I think it's too thin an understanding mm -hmm. for what could be going on. So, to give you an example, you know, I some of my teacher collaborators we're going on 15 years mm. of working together now so uh, this isn't I, it's not as extractive I'm not going in to get my data mm -hmm. and then go away and make my own sense of things um, one of my guiding principles is that young people themselves are some of the best theorists of their lives they're constantly testing out theories I love that. they're constantly figuring out whether what they imagine to be true is in fact true and they uh, challenge themselves to um, not just reinforce old knowledge but to see if there's something new to be gleaned mm -hmm. so my my whole and this is an ethnographic research per se but it is my approach to ethnography and that is that we're engaged in a kind of form of collaborative analysis I'm not doing interviews because I've got the answers and I need confirmation. Um, sometimes the youth are interviewing me, sometimes they're interviewing each other. Um, they're making up the questions. We're, we're turning the space of the classroom into a large inquiry in which all of us have some investment. And what we want to learn from it might be quite different. And that's good, that's ideal, if that's the case. If we can, even if we can articulate what those differences are. So in the current study, to, to circle <laughs> <Get> back. back. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I had to ask the question. Um, to, to circle back, um, where I'm sitting now is thinking about my research as really being 
thinking about my very local research, Toronto schools, um, as being uh, wildly enhanced by global perspectives. Mm. Not just that I'm bringing global content into the room, but I'm trying to create a research project which uh, benefits from vastly, vastly different, differently situated uh, people in working in geopolitically diverse contexts. So in the current study, I work with a teacher and a school in Toronto, a youth um, theater group, and they have partners of social workers and teachers um, in, Ca in Canley, in Coventry, in England, um, an after-school drama club in a sub suburb of Athens in Greece with teacher and researchers and, and uh, artist practitioners, a um, second-year theater studies program in Tainan, in Taiwan, where there are faculty engaged and visiting artists and young people who actually are 18, 19 years old who want to study theater, who mm -hmm. want to somehow make theater a part of their career, whatever that might be. And lastly, uh, a lo my longest collaborator, um, an NGO in Lucknow in India, and that's a school. It's a, it's a multi-pronged um, NGO with multiple schools and um, organizations stemming from of it from that and one of one of the organizations is called Prerna and it's a school for lowest caste girls in India mm. who are domestic servants in the day and would otherwise not be in school if it were not for Prerna mm. which means inspiration in Hindi so uh, I, 13 years I've been working with uh, Sani, um who is the founder and CEO of that organization so you can see from that brief introduction that we're really talking about apples and oranges here. We're talking, e each one of those places could be an extensive multi-year study. <laughs> so to bring all of those sites together, um, what I decided to do in this project was to look at three different genres of theater making and to share the leadership between North and South um, perspectives in this global study by having different um, leaders each year um, lead the pedagogical practice. So in the first year, the Toronto uh, team, myself, uh, graduate students, a team of 10 graduate students um, doing their PhD, and uh, Andrew Kushner of Project Humanity, um, and that's a nonprofit theater, independent theater company in Toronto, we built up the practice of verbatim theater, which is, for those who don't know, a way of making theater that's actually built from interviews because mm -hmm. it's word for word theater making. Yeah, the Laramie Project is verbatim exactly. theater. Yeah, exactly. So we created that practice. We have, as you might imagine, we're not constantly always traveling to each other with these distances. So we have an online communications platform and we um, share our share lessons, we uh, post video footage of work that youth are doing in the different spaces, um, ask questions of each other, um, borrow each other's eyes and ears to help us with analysis of things we're seeing. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing, in my mind, there's nothing better than a very distanced eye to look at something that 
for you is normal and every day to ask you the obvious question that you no longer think about because mm. you live so much inside it. So um, the second year we used a genre of theatre making called oral history performance and that's really amazing and many teachers who use drama w would recognize this because it's really built from a personal memory of the individuals making the devising the drama and that came in our case and this was led by um, Dr. Wan Wung Wang in Tainan and she's an international expert in oral history performance mm. and she shared her practice with all of us and of course we make it relevant to our local situations we're not um, we're working in really diverse spaces so she's sharing a second year university curriculum that she uses with her students and in Athens and Coventry the kids are some of them are 11 years old so we're adapting culturally we're adapting linguistically we're Aww. adapting developmentally mm -hmm. and um, and that uh, those performances were built from objects that the youth in all of the sites brought in and shared with their peers the, the meaning of those objects mm -hmm. and in the third year we were focusing on devising and creating ensembles which is kind of a, a tool of all drama making processes but we were looking explicitly at how to navigate whole group creation and so it wasn't so much based on someone's personal story that maybe then others enter into and build up, but how do we begin with the desires of a collective? Mm. And that was led, co-led by our um, two researchers in Greece and in Coventry, and uh, Dr. Rachel King and Dr. Mircho uh, Pigou-Rupuzi. And they shared their practice and uh, they were different. One was based in Greece, one was based in England. We did our work. Hello, plane overhead. <laughs> <laughs> we carried out that work and um, through all of those years, and this is I think particularly important for teachers, um, what did India bring to all of this? Because they didn't bring a specific genre. And maybe listeners would be amazed to learn that they're one of the highest performing schools in India. They write all of the state exams of the regular um, state school system. And their entire curriculum is taught through drama. So mm. every subject uses drama as a, me as a methodology. Oh my goodness, that's so inspiring. Yeah, it's really <laughs> inspiring. So in this case, the way that they work with drama is, is, a, is a hybrid way. It's culturally specific, but it's also, also really borrows Dr. Urvashisani um, is a big fan of Freire and um, has adapted thinking about theatre of the oppressed, Boali and theatre, uh, to suit the girls at Prerna. Mm -hmm. And that means that she's developed something called feminist um, critical dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so her pedagogy is a movement between <coughs> sitting around a table and having what we in the West might consider deep and focused conversation about an issue and getting it up on its feet and moving back to the dialogue and getting up on the floor and moving back to the dialogue and we got to witness her do that pedagogy when we were in India and that's been shared across the sites and we've all kind of made adaptations to think about uh, 
the potency that, um, first of all, what drama affords by being an, an embodied way to explore an issue or, a, or an idea, and the, the role that strong pedagogical leadership plays in helping youth um, explore the things they, they believe they're interested mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So to, to have that delicate and beautiful sensibility about letting go and entering in and raising the stakes. And so she's masterful at that. And we've all used that pedagogy in our various sites. So why, why this study? Why are we just all having fun and doing <laughs> PD together? I know it's not sounding a lot like research at the moment. Um, well, this may convince listeners. We have a huge quantitative survey that everyone does. But even our survey is relational. Even our survey is not about saying, uh, how can we generalize from these 195 young people who have taken this survey in multiple languages? Mm -hmm. No, our interest is, these are people that we've had relationships with, that we've met, that we've worked with in, in embodied ways. Uh, what more could the kinds of questions that quantitative research ask help us understand what we're learning qualitatively or help us see things differently? And so that's, that's been really fascinating. But the Toronto team has spent um, a couple of weeks in all of the sites, and all of the sites have spent um, a couple of weeks in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So we began as a team. And there were two ideas from my previous research, and this is where I get to your point of you think about big ideas. Um, the big ideas for me that didn't just come out of my head but came from the previous two years of five-year ethnographies where two ideas really surfaced as, as crucially important to me. One um, was that um, the ways in which young people give care, not just receive care, mm. the way that they are caretakers in their communities, in their families, in their schools um, is uh, very positively correlated with their orientation to academic learning, hmm. the normative trajectories of schooling. So I was perplexed by that. Um, most studies on school engagement, including the one that I did, um, don't pay enough attention to outside school um, lives and activities. And what became really clear in my last study was that there's a super important relationship between how young people are engaged in caretaking and their their engagement with academic schooling. Wow. Yeah, so, wow, exactly. And yeah. I said, I have to do a whole new study to figure out what that finding means. I actually remember that coming up in your putting, putting inner city schools first. Yes. And a teacher that I actually visited with you, and you did an interview, and that theme really came up of students bringing their lives outside of the classroom in, and that teacher, like I was rereading an interview that you just did about that teacher, hmm. and how she brought, like completely embraced the worlds of the students outside of the classroom yeah. into what they're doing in the drama class. Yeah. That's amazing that that just keeps showing up mm -hmm. across all cultures, you're saying, like yes. within all these different contexts that you're looking at. Well, that came from the previous study, which was actually Toronto, US, um, Taiwan, and India. Mm -hmm. So when I thought to this study, I expanded it. I included Greece and England. Um, 
and I've been looking at this idea of care giving and care receiving and a lot of a lot of research about especially youth who are struggling socioeconomically or come from challenging circumstances um, a lot of attention across fields is around taking care of them and what I was really uh, rightly so but what I was really intrigued by was that uh, how they take care of others was a greater determinant of their engagement in school than the reverse. Wow. So as a teacher, or I mean, I feel like you could think about this in two different ways as a parent and as a teacher. And as an educator, I would want to get really curious about who are my students outside of school? Yeah. Who do they care about? Who are they invested in? Who are they? Yes. I, I don't even want to say looking after because I feel like that has such a like it's a limiting way of saying it, but who are they looking out for? Yes, that's exactly right. So mm -hmm. in, the, in this study, in the quantitative piece of it, uh, we really expanded those questions in precisely the way that you've suggested. What, 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 what is unfolding in those seemingly altruistic activities that mm -hmm. is so meaningful to their sense of themselves in school? What is happening? And so we asked those reins of questions, but the other way to think about this, which is circling way back to my resistance to the word drama as a tool is to say what uh, how does the drama classroom how does work in making theater together whatever the classroom um, how does it create the conditions for tapping into that kind of learning mm -hmm. those ways of being that can where that space then becomes a rehearsal ground a refining space for impulses that young people already have and do instinctively and have theories about have theories about why they do it what they gain from it wow so then making that theater becomes not just a lovely activity of having a shared goal and realizing it and sharing it with audiences and all of those things are super valuable and an important part of this project but it's far bigger than that especially in a socially polarized world especially in the social media bubbles that people exist in young people in particular and so um, what's going on in that creative and teaching and learning environment that can be leveraged, can be practiced, can, uh, can fail, there's lots, tons of failure, but then to look at that failure not as, oh, the play could have been better, which is the go-to, uh, but what, what was happening that, to give you the example of Brexit, um, and Coventry, we arrived the night before the referendum, the night before <laughs> our team landed. So when we met that Canley Youth Theatre group, they were in the throes of this entirely unexpected unraveling. And what surfaced in that first meeting was that though many of them, all of them were too young to vote, so the decision that would affect the rest of their lives they had no say in. Mm -hmm. They had feelings about that, you can, you can imagine. And some of them were young enough to be uh, absorbed in the conversations they were hearing at home and their parents and their families. And there were two young people in that group, one of whom was absolutely broken because his father worked for Jaguar Land Rover and the company was going to leave. So his immediate family was thrown into utter uncertainty at that announcement and another young girl who did a mock vote at school and voted to stay and 
what we watched happen in that room in the intensity of that moment including the researchers and the artists who had their own emotional response that day what we watched unfold was young people who could sit very powerfully with difference it came to light in the first couple of moments that they sat on opposite sides of the remain leave question these two young people and another boy said um, can you just tell us why you you voted to leave just no judgment but can you give us an idea of why so she was nervous tried to express that really she felt quite influenced by a conversation she'd been hearing at the end of a long journey of us watching totally un unmediated by the adults in the room not us not the theater director not the researcher they navigated this really consequential conversation made room for their differences and the two young people who were most affected most at odds in their belief ended that conversation with a fist bump which I <laughs> captured on video and when I, I constantly look back at that negotiation of not inconsequential but highly consequential um, and immediately personal fallout from that and watched how their ensemble had found a way to listen to each other to confront conflict to address conflict to not sweep it under the carpet to not in the interest of staying a nice happy group uh, they went straight for it with a kind of maturity and those are the quote-unquote hard skills if you like that um, young people can come away with in those sensitively um, led drama-making contexts. So that, that's one example. Um, so that was about care, mm -hmm. where the adults in the room, who are there ostensibly, they're social workers, they were, mm -hmm. as they call, kids in care in that room, so they were foster children. Um, they had all kinds of advocates in the room, and that was a moment where the adults in the room were uh, marveling at the sophistication of their communication, of their the, the, the way that they could stay in the challenge of it for a long time without racing to judgment or without feeling personally affronted. So I, I see that over and over. I see that. It's, a, it's an achievement mm -hmm. of, a, of a room that can work like that. Well, it sounds like they've been taught how to take care of each other. So care. Yeah. So back to my, my yeah. obsession with care. I told you there were two findings from the last study. So the other one was about hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the context of the last study, um, it, was, it was at a time where there was a lot of increased surveillance in school. And, and as I told you, there, we were in a US school as well, in New York, in fact. So um, there was a lot of desperation and uncertainty. And what I kept hearing from young people um, were ideas about hope, but I wasn't hearing it as I was used to hearing it. It wasn't about, in the future everything will be better, mm. or if I just have a positive attitude, attitude it will all work out. It was what I, f what I discovered as hope as a practice. In other words, having hope when there's least reason for it. And it's something that you practice. It's not something, it's not a possession. It's not, it's not that you have it or don't have it. It's something that you practice. And I actually mm -hmm. learned that most from 
young people in the context of another study I was doing in a shelter for homeless youth. And they woke me up to the idea of how adults have a future-oriented notion of, of hope. Hmm. But hope had to be a practice. It had to be chosen. In the present moment. In the present moment. Mm -hmm. And so this current study also, this multi-sided study, was to say, help me, help me better understand what those young people told me, taught me a long time ago. And I told you Brexit, the other, we, we arrived at, you know, Greece is in an econo full out economic mm -hmm. collapse with now a, uh, an, a, an untenable refugee crisis, a humanitarian crisis in the school we were working in, because drama can't be in the curriculum, it has to be an after school mm -hmm. club was contemplating housing refugees on its second floor in unused classrooms because the islands were filled to capacity. So we arrived in that absolutely localized context and crisis, mm -hmm. double crisis. Um, we arrived in Taiwan the moment um, that young people had occupied the legislature, young people, a, a young person's activist group, uh, because of trade with China that was going to limit their possibilities for employment in the future. And you have a knack of showing up in these places right yes, as something you know big is this happening. Is, well, and while we were there, the marriage equality law was being put forward, and most of, most, many of the theater students and the rehearsals we saw them in were telling stories about queer mm -hmm. youth. Mm -hmm. And their legislature was arguing uh, the marriage equality law. And fast forward two months, we're back, and they're the first country in Asia to pass that law. Mm. So we arrived at, uh, yes, it's one thing to think that <laughs> I have a knack for showing up, but here's what, here's what I would say. That's the world we're living in now. It's no coincidence. I'm, I'm not a lucky researcher who gets the really juicy stuff. It's actually the new normal. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty, I didn't just pick well. And that's something for us to think about, using all of the tools at our disposal to say, what happens when you're in a, a kind of perpetual state of crisis? Mm. And we, we don't know what particular crises might, might emerge as the, as the ones that pull our attention most, but that is a kind of normal that young people are navigating that I, I certainly you know that I was reflecting on this only yesterday when I think of my high school yearbook you know in five years of high school as it was at that time there might have been two major events that made it into our yearbook we're talking about multiple global uh, devastating yeah. uh, environmental and social events every year every many times a year so that feels like a new context in which to do research mm -hmm. and what pulls our focus and as a teacher to bring in for your students like you have that as a wonderful not wonderful it's not the right word but as a way to guide questions and to allow students outside lives to come into the drama class but as a teacher these are on our students minds like yeah. they're really thinking about these things oh, yeah. and to not lean into that or ask those questions I think it's doing our students a huge disservice um, because I think that there's a, a huge heightened anxiety around what does Brexit mean for my family yes. what does it mean that um, there's a wall being built between Mexico and yeah. the southern United States like yeah, yeah it, it's a 
unfortunate reason why we have this fertile ground for material to mm -hmm. process in our classrooms, but it's there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and it, it doesn't mean necessarily that, um, because I worry about this, as you know, I'm, my son is only 10 and he's very affected by the barrage of news that he hears. We, we have to turn the radio off when he yeah. comes into the kitchen. So I agree, it's too much. And mm -hmm. you don't want to dwell in, uh, I don't think we're built for that. It's, it's unsustainable, or at least it will have very negative consequences. But that's different from saying, I have a, not just a responsibility, but a possibility in this room, in my classroom, to bring all of my powers of creativity and ensemble building and uh, teamwork and however you want to characterize mm. it to to look at a problem to look at not just solutions it's not it's a it's a new way of navigating to take in difference and not be so threatened by it yeah. you know to understand uh, when we are called to um, be responsible to something beyond ourselves and I you know the upside of this is that as as when I'm when the glass is half empty for me, I'm, I'm, I'm sad for what my son and other people's children um, are enduring in their young, young lives. On the upside, I think, my God, they, they, will, they will have navigational tools. They will have a way to, um, to render positive the negativity that they breathe to a capacity that I certainly don't have that mm. we know and in that could be major solutions to world dilemmas I, I don't doubt it for a moment mm -hmm. if we practice radical hope if like, we practice radical hope if we're actually using that as a way to sit in the mire the muck the discomfort yeah yeah I agree and what better than a than a creative project making a play together building original works from the original stories of the of the players know what a better way to I, I don't I don't I mean it might have therapeutic effects but that's not the point the point is that we have uh, tremendous capacity um, it's too late when we're talking about resilience <laughs> we have capacities to direct how we want to be in the world how we want to be with others um, what we can what we gain and what we give in those circles back back to the question of care and making more complex that notion of care rather than some of the paternalistic ways that we think about it as teachers as mm -hmm. caretakers of young people as parents mm -hmm. you know we could we we would benefit greatly from attending to that um, to the nuance of that idea and to not always be the directors of it yeah oh that's I mean I could talk with you for hours about this it's really huge the implications that that has could because it's not just in a drama classroom like no. what you're finding and what you're looking at that's for all adults oh, who yeah. work with children like yeah. that's about parents and how they consider who their children can also take care of mm -hmm. that's for teachers who are teaching language arts and math considering how do we allow students to sit with discomfort and grapple with what's really on their hearts because mm -hmm. it's not always algebra no but that's yeah. that's really huge. I'm uh, I'm really glad you're doing that work. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, I don't know what my life would be without it. Actually. You'd be an amazing drama teacher, but you're you're <laughs> you've got a bigger audience now. You've got a bigger stage. 
Yeah, I'm lucky. I'm lucky. So on that, I think um, it's really important just to touch on what classroom teachers can do because it's not possible for all teachers to go and get their PhD and to right. become you know, world-renowned researchers, but you know what you're doing. You know the research world really well, and you've found a wonderful home in that practice. Uh, I'm constantly, I'm not surprised, but I'm constantly excited whenever I see you've won another award because you so deserve it. And I, the only thing that I'm sad about is I never had you as a professor. I know. And my wife, Leslie, was like, wait a minute, how did you meet Kathleen Gallagher again? I'm like, <laughs> Ivan Service connected us, yes. but I never got to actually take any of your classes. It's true. So anyway, all of this to say is that you're you're an amazing researcher, and I would love for you to give some advice to the classroom teachers who want to engage with action research or <laughs> any kind of work where their classroom is their laboratory. Some of the people listening to this will be experimenting with things in their classroom and then writing about it on a blog to share with their mm -hmm. larger audiences or yeah. um, you know creating video journals about the work that they're doing with their students mm -hmm. what advice do you have for teachers who want to get better at classroom research wow that's a great great question um, so when you were you know singing my praises there and talking about awards I was thinking uh, one of the one of the um, one of the ways that I think uh, I've found myself in this position and I've gone down the paths I've had is because I didn't want to think research in its traditional terms. Mm -hmm. If I if I had, I, I might equally be a great researcher, but I I wouldn't be I wouldn't have been challenged in the ways that I have been challenged, which have made me a better researcher. Um, so if I'm throwing myself back to a classroom and wanting, as I really do, wanting to inspire teachers in what is an extraordinarily busy and overcommitted life already, to take on the idea of research, I would say that one of the ways to do that is to think about all of the communities that you are even tangentially connected to as a teacher of those students in that room mm -hmm. and so that already necessitates knowing those students um, in ways beyond schools in ways beyond which schools often um, are satisfied and to figure out well when I think about how I've done community engaged research uh, one of my positions is I'm not just in partnership or in collaboration with my communities, I'm in a relationship with my collaborators' collaborators, mm -hmm. and I don't always know who they are. Mm -hmm. So one of the th first things I would want to do is think beyond, in my teacher head, beyond the obvious stakeholders, beyond the people who would benefit from your research, um, and the most important in that is yourself as a teacher and the students with whom you're working. That's it. Okay, they have families then you have uh, administrators and possibly colleagues who are interested in the work you're doing and then there might be people at boards or you know in in higher administrative roles who might want to leverage the work you're doing those are all the obvious routes those are all the great to take care of that but what about thinking beyond that 
And if you learn from a student that um, they're part of a program with an organization that you've never heard of, uh, and that student gets a lot out of being engaged, what, what, what might prevent you? And I know I, I'm always reluctant to say these things um, because I know how taxing the everyday teaching life is for teachers. But I can only say that lots of researchers, quote unquote, don't have time to do that either. Um, it, 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 it has so deeply enhanced my life as a researcher to think about my collaborators, grow those circles, and think about the circles around my collaborators and what conversations. And, and that's why I said earlier, it's not just about give and take, it's not reciprocity. There are concentric circles around these things, and this is something about the model of caregiving and receiving, that it, it amplifies. Mm -hmm. So my good example will be that this research, of course, is mine and, and belongs to many other people across the world, including a documentary playwright, Andrew Kushner, who had his own experiences alongside me and who will be world premiering a play at Crow's Theatre in 2019 mm. in Toronto that we want to be able to translate and so that it, it, it is in all of those sites. Well, if, if I had imagined that in my own head, oh, how can I you know, really do this? I, I, I never could have come to that because it required Andrew working in his collaborative communities to give life to something that many people find they have a stake in they and it's a it's an easy sell y young people and the the state of our democracy because they are telling us how we're doing mm -hmm. and not so well it turns out so there's a lot of people with an investment in that and you were talking about design thinking and I, I can well imagine that there are partners of partners of partners and so rather than the teacher saying I must do this this additional thing on top of everything else to to look at your curriculum and where are the entry points mm -hmm. and I and and who are the people who would who, who would either challenge my thinking about that or add some meaningful element that I don't have time for that they might want to take up and then suddenly this little classroom thing has a life beyond you and your people and it grows in different directions in other spaces so though at the outset it sounds like more work it sounds like meeting more people and having more meetings and I, I will be the first to admit this is not a short-term <laughs> proposition no. it simply is not but that's okay. It's okay to say, um, you know what, did I know that I would still be collaborating with Orvashi 14 years later? I did not know. Did I know that the drama student who was in my classroom the very first time I was a professor of drama at U of T in my first year in September would still be my teacher collaborator 18 years later? No, I did not know, but it's true. And so, um, with that kind of orientation, you, you, you end up, I, I said this recently at a, at a talk at U of T, it's, it's, it's a long-term marriage. You're, mm. you're in for the highs and lows. You're, you're, it's, a, it's a big, big commitment. And that's not to say that you can't try out relationships that maybe don't have that staying power, and that's not a failure. But to, um, to get outside, I think, formal educations known stakeholders mm -hmm. and because that's going to give a teacher 
as much as she puts out to seek that out that that's my advice so mm. if I have a dilemma in in my room something I want to address or I want to take up through action research to work with my students so that we ha have a solution to this well then maybe that little thing is also connected to larger questions that have to do with the moment that we're living in that the young people in the room will want to take in their own directions not just what the teacher imagines to be the mm. most critical well then you're unleashing on the world of a lot of researchers and giving them skills and they'll go to their collaborators who may become your collaborators too and I just feel like um, you know the business world the education world has a way to kind of turn that thinking into market exchanges and it would be really great to blow those doors open a little bit mm. and even get get past the, the tool idea yeah. and say um, there are a lot of intersecting communities and we all don't know each other's we don't have each other's expertise and we, we can be really clear about that but we do all have expertise that would be a benefit to each mm. other and so that that small challenge becomes something that that other people run with in the ways that are relevant to them and then your your own solution is amplified tenfold so yeah there's there's my mm. challenge start with that yeah open with vulnerability and yeah. bring open your door because it's so easy to get siloed into our little classrooms and yeah just and so understandable because the the pressures and challenges there are enormous it's not that people are closing off to do a small job they're closing off to do a big job mm -hmm. but I guess my impulse is make it bigger and when you make it bigger it actually becomes more manageable Wow I would never have guessed you would answer that question in that way that's what I love about you <laughs> <laughs> we are rounding the corner towards the end of this conversation okay. and at the end of every episode we do a ticket out the door because we're amazing teachers and we send our people off into the universe with a ticket before uh -huh. we leave which is just a series of random questions that you cannot prepare that helps people get to know you a little bit better uh -huh. so are you ready for some yes. random questions about Dr. Kathleen Gallagher yes okay here we go what is your favorite book to read to young people what age? Let's say 15 and under. Mm, I think I really like, um, I really like the, was it from the San Diego Zoo, the penguins? Mm -hmm. I'm blanking on the name now. Tango Makes Three. Yeah, Tango Makes Three. Mm -hmm. I think I really love that one. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. What's the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? I walk out on this deck. <laughs> <laughs> this time of year yeah and uh, I usually water the flowers what is the first thing you do when you get home at the end of the day mm. my days are not routinized so I'm trying to think what's a typical day for me um, I definitely am either waiting for or charging in to scream and hug my son <laughs> <laughs> that's great uh, where is your favorite place in Canada to visit <gasps> you have to pick favorites I'm oh sorry god uh, my favorite place 
Um, I mean, I think I think in the everyday, it's ravine ravine walks would be my my go to. Cedarvale ravine. Cedarvale, Rosedale mm-hmm. ravine, Don Valley, yeah. uh, multiple ravines. Nice, keep um, it local. Go-to. Yeah, High Park, <laughs> not quite a ravine. We did a trip across. Um, dro- drove to Brandon, Manitoba last summer to visit with a former PhD student of mine and uh, going around the North Shore of Lake Huron, uh, sorry, Lake Superior, uh, lake after lake after lake in a, in a hot summer drive and jumping out and jumping in lakes. I think the water, both city and rural and northern that we have, is like um, one of the most cherished things about this country. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite snack during the day? Favorite snack? Snack food. Mm, trail mix. <laughs> <laughs> favorite school safe snack? Oh, okay. Favorite school safe snack? Well, it's, got, it's gonna be a fruit, because I'm mad about fruit. So this time of year, it's gonna be a peach or a nectarine, but every other time, it's pretty well gonna be an apple. Fantastic I guess that's choice. fitting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, okay, finally, uh, Cohort 21, which is the professional development group that we're part of, has the tagline, Rethinking Learning for the 21st Century. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to ask people at the very end, what do you think the future of learning is? I think the future of learning is really old-fashioned. <laughs> I think it's not, it's not going to look um, technologically advanced. It's going to be a way of figuring out to be, how to be face-to-face um, in a, and to be a shelter, a shelter for each other in that space. So I think we're going to go a long way to figure out what we really value about being in a classroom Mm. and that is human beings in all their frailty uh, reaching out to each other that's beautiful I I'll sign up for that future me too (laughs) thank you so much for chatting with me today thank you Celeste a very full and warm thank you to Kathleen for taking the time to share some of her research with me Kathleen is kind of a big deal in the world of education, so knowing that she was willing to sit down for this podcast, I think, speaks so profoundly to how Kathleen takes care of the people in her community. Links to the play Towards Youth is in the show notes. Do yourself a favor and get yourself a seat before March 16th to see this powerful piece of verbatim theater while you still can. That's all the time for today, folks. Keep taking care of each other, and remember, we are teaching tomorrow.